Uh, two weeks ago, we began our study in 1 Peter, and we saw that Peter is writing to believers who have been scattered throughout the ancient world due to persecution. They were being persecuted for their faith. They were being systematically slaughtered for their faith, and they're spread all throughout the world, and that's the audience that Peter's writing to. In fact, he calls them, in the very first verse or two, he calls them elect exiles. You are elect exiles. They were chosen by God. They were elect, and they are spiritual exiles, not just physical exiles, but spiritually, their home is not here on earth. It's in heaven. Peter tells them in the opening verses of his letter that God's great mercy caused them to be born again. They obtained an inheritance in the future reserved in heaven. Inheritance is a family term. Uh, as Pastor Jeremy talked about last week, if you are a Christian, you are truly a child of God, and there is great reward left for you in heaven. Born again into the family of God, adopted as a child of God, what a wonderful privilege. It is undeserved, it is unearned, but that's the gospel that we hold our hopes in. The question is, now that we know all that, how now should we act? What do we do now as children of God? We are part of the family of God. We've been brought under, from under the domain of darkness and into God's family. How does that change the way that we behave? How does that impact our mindset, our behavior, our goals, our hopes, our longings? What does that do to us? Well, in today's passage from 1 Peter, we're going to see our first three direct commands. For 12 verses, Peter's just been laying foundation. Here's what the gospel is. Here's what God has done in you. And now we transition to, so what? What do we do as a result of that? So three primary commands that Peter's going to give. We call them imperatives in the Greek language. Uh, but he began by laying this foundation of who we are in Christ, a focus in the gospel, and now it's the so what. He begins to apply that doctrine to our lives. How does that change us? So open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. We have a couple of ushers here who are happy to give out some Bibles. If you need one, just raise your hand. It's either on loan for you today, or if you need one, like you don't have one, feel free to keep it. It's our gift to you. 1 Peter, we're going to start in chapter 1, verse 13. This is where the first command is found in this book. Peter writes, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First thing I want you to notice is that word, therefore. You've probably heard this before in church, but it bears repeating. Good tip for Bible study, whenever you're studying the word of God, is whenever you see the word, therefore, stop and ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? So what is it doing in this text? Why does he start with the word therefore? Well, he's taking everything that he said in the first 12 verses, because we are elect exiles, because we are born again to a living hope, because we have an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance, therefore, prepare your minds, keep sober, and fix your hope on Jesus Christ and his coming revelation. Now, I said we're going to see three main imperatives, three main commands in this text today. Only one of them is found in this verse, even though all three of those phrases sound like commands. Which one of those three phrases is the actual command? Well, in the original Greek language, the one of those is what we call an imperative. The one imperative here, that direct command, is the command to fix your hope. Fix your hope. 
So that's command number one in this text. Believers fix their hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. The other two phrases that sound like commands are what we call participles. They're kind of attached to that main command and show us how we are to fix our hope. But the details of this text really matter. He says, fix your hope completely. Every bit of our hope as Christians ought to be on the sure foundation that the gospel that began its work in us in eternity past, continues its work in us in the present day, will indeed find its final and full completion at the coming of Jesus Christ. That is what we are to fix our hope completely in. Remember that foundation that Peter laid. You are elect exiles. In eternity past, God elected you according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God caused you to be born again to a living hope. In the present day, we are saved. And you have a wonderful inheritance awaiting you in the future. What do you do about all that? Well, Peter says, because of that, we fix our hope completely on the fact that God will finish that work in you when he returns. Completely doesn't leave anything out, does it? Absolutely, 100%, our hope ought to be on that fact. We don't fix our hope in our 401ks. We don't fix our hope in our tenure or our job security. We don't fix our hope in our spouses or our family or our education. We don't fix our hope in a political party or any one particular person. Every bit of our hope rests in the coming of Jesus Christ and the completion of our salvation when he gets here. We will be given new resurrected bodies as we sung about this morning. The curse of sin is going to be eliminated. Any fears or anxieties or sorrows are going to be wiped away. Death will be forever destroyed. Those are the things that we should obsess our minds about to fix our hope in. Every one of us will one day face the reality of death. Wah, wah, happy Mother's Day, right? <laughs> now, some of you, because of your age or because of the latest doctor's diagnosis, maybe you're thinking about that more often. We don't fix our hope in healthcare. We don't fix our hope in exercise or diet. We don't fix our hope in medicine or insurance or our government. You fix your hope in the promise that Jesus Christ's work within you will one day be finally fulfilled. Even if you die in this life, Christ will raise your body again, make you whole and new, defeat death once for all. Our perspective is not earthly and temporary. Our perspective is heavenly and eternal as Christians. I want you in all this to remember the historical situation of Peter's readers. They were being persecuted. They were scattered throughout the world. The, the emperor Nero was cutting them down, actively seeking Christians to kill. Peter was not saying, fix your hope on, on getting some relief from this persecution. That would have been easy to write. Peter's not even saying, fix your hope in a new emperor one day. Hopefully the political party will change and, and we'll have hope again. He doesn't say fix our hope in any of that. Their hope had to extend beyond the temporary perspective of most people in this world and be fixed utterly and entirely in the future in Christ's work. Well, what does that look like for us? How do we do that? Those other two phrases in that first verse help us to understand what it looks like to fix our hope on these eternal things. 
We fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ. How? He says, by preparing our minds for action and by keeping sober in the spirit. Right now, we use the New American Standard version here at church. It's a very good version. But what I don't like about it here in this verse is it translates these two phrases as commands. I think the ESV actually probably captures the the sense of this a little bit better. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. We set our hope fully on that grace, how? By preparing our minds for action. Literally, that phrase can be translated, girding up the loins of your minds. Do you know what that phrase means, to gird up the loins? We don't use that phrase often today, do we, if, if at all? You know, when my kids are getting ready for school in the morning, I don't remind them, hey, make sure you gird up your loins before you walk out the door. That's not the typical phrase we use. Usually I say something like, make sure your pants are on the right way or something like that. Back in Peter's day, they didn't wear pants. They didn't wear T-shirts. What they wore typically were robes, some kind of tunic. And if you were going to go out and you were going to have some kind of action in your life, you're going to run somewhere, you're going to do something physical, you had to gird up the loins of that robe which means you typically pulled it up a little bit and you'd tie it off or you'd tuck in the garment in that belt that you would wear around that robe. That was girding up the loins of your robe. And what Peter does is he takes that phrase and he applies it to the mind. Ready your minds for action, in other words. Be ever ready mentally for the Lord's work and for the Lord's coming. A modern day equivalent might be to say it like this, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Tighten up the belts of your mind. Get ready for this race. We fix our hope by readying our minds for action. We also fix our hope by keeping sober in the spirit. Now that's present tense. That's a continual action. We keep sober as we fix our hope on Christ's return. This is a metaphor. We all know what it means to keep sober physically, but he's saying keep sober spiritually. People who have no hope are like spiritual drunks. People who have hope keep their minds clear and fixed on the promise of Christ's return. We avoid being under the influence of the culture's fears and the culture's priorities and the culture's pressures. We think straight, we clear our minds, and we fix our hope on Jesus Christ and his return. Why do we do that? Because we are born again to a living hope and we are members of the family of God. So command number one in this passage, believers fix their hope on the coming of Jesus Christ. Command number two, we see in verses 14 to 16. Let's read that. Peter goes on and he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the second command we find here, actually in verse 15. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Be holy. The root idea of holiness is a separation. You're separating yourself apart from the world's influences and lust and sin, and you're separating yourselves unto a holy God who saved you. You are holy, So be holy. So command number two is believers are called to be holy. And Peter uh, qualifies that command in a number of ways in these few verses. 
He says, first of all, we are to be holy as obedient children. Think about that for a second. Mothers, what would be the best gift for you today? Flowers? Chocolates? A nice spa treatment? Maybe just getting away from your kids for a couple of hours? What would be the best gift for you today? How about obedient children? I mean, as a dad, I would trade all the flowers and chocolates in the world if I had nice, obedient kids all the time. You know, if we could trade those kids that run around like crazy, and, and I mean, we love them, right? We love them, and, and we raise them in the Lord, but, but let's be honest, we want obedient kids, don't we? Peter says, as obedient children, we are to be holy. As obedient children, we are to be holy. We are born again into God's family, adopted into a new family. How now do we live in light of that status? We live as holy, obedient children. He qualifies it secondly by saying, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. We should live as obedient children. We should not live according to our former lifestyle. There is a fundamental change that should take place within you when you become a Christian. You ever, you ever take your kids somewhere nice? Or maybe you remember when your parents took you somewhere nice? Um, you would always warn them when you, when you go somewhere nice, don't act like a bunch of animals, right? At, behave like a human being for once, please. When we're going out to this fancy restaurant or someone's house or whatever, behave like a human. Behave like you are. We, we used to live in Michigan, and we lived in this town called Belleville. And Belleville was a very nice town. It had nice houses. It had a nice, good schools, very nice place to live. When we lived in New Jersey, we lived near a town called Bayville. Uh, Bayville was, it was not a bad town, but it wasn't known as like the nicest town in its area. It certainly wasn't a dump, but the standard of living wasn't as high as some of the towns around it. Uh, you, you would see unkept lawns in Bayville, and you would see more houses uncared for, and not as many people really cared about that sort of thing. Well, when we were in Michigan, in Belleville, if our backyard ever got messy or if our grass ever got too high, we, we would become this blight to the neighborhood, uh, I would say to my wife, Belleville, not Bayville, right? We live in Belleville, not Bayville. We, we can't live like we used to live. The standard around us is higher. And that's kind of what Peter's driving at here. You are not children of the world anymore. You are children of God. It, it's not living according to your former lusts and behavior. It's living according to you being adopted into the, the family of God. Therefore, that standard of living is now higher. Don't be conformed to your former way of life. That word conformed is a word used uh, for fitting something into a mold. Don't allow yourself to be poured into the mold of our culture or our former way of life. Being a born-again Christian conforms us to a different mold. Being holy means that we're set apart from the way that the world is trying to mold us. You realize that, right? This world is actively trying to change your mind about God. It is actively trying to pull you in a different direction. We are being told that boys can be girls and girls can be boys and she's can be they's and, and all sorts of strange things. We are being told that right is wrong and what was once wrong is now actually right. As Christians, we don't decide on what is right or wrong based on what Twitter tells us. 
We don't decide on morality based on whose voice is the loudest in this world. We decide on morality based on the unchanging word of God. That is the mold in which we pour ourselves. Now, the scary thing is, the way Peter words this, he's indicating that the default position of our minds is to conform not to the word of God, but to the world. If we are going on autopilot, we are going to conform ourselves to the former way of life. He's saying we have to actively work at being conformed to the mold of Scripture. God's word, more than anything else, is what should shape us and mold us. Why? Well, that's the third way he qualifies this command to be holy. He says, like the holy one who called you, be holy. Why should we be holy? Well, because God is holy. His commands for us are based on his character. You ever think about that? Why does God command what he commands? Like, why are these laws God's laws? Why did he decide on this as our object of, or our standard of morality? Why does God say, thou shalt not lie? Well, it's because God is a God of truth, and therefore lying is wrong. Well, why does God say you shouldn't hate your neighbor? Well, because God is a God of love, and therefore hate is wrong. You see how that works? God's commands in Scripture stem from the character of God. We are called to be holy because God is holy. And then what Peter does is he quotes the book of Leviticus. Here's the fourth way he qualifies that command to be holy. He says, because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's a direct quote from Leviticus chapter 11. It's like Peter saying this command is not anything new. This has always been around. Nothing has changed. The, the Israelites were supposed to be holy, and so we as Christians are supposed to be holy. God's character hasn't changed, and therefore his commands have not changed for his people. So we are called to be holy, to be set apart. We are called to fix our hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The third command is found in verses 17 to 19. Peter says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This command is easy to spot. He says, conduct yourselves in fear. So third command that we see, believers live in godly fear with eternal rewards in mind. With eternal rewards in mind. He says, if you address as father, and, and the way, by the way, that Peter writes that, if you address, uh, he writes it in, in assumption that that's true. You could even translate that, since you have addressed God as father. He assumes that this is true of his readers. Assuming you address God as Father, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, what does that mean? Why do we live in fear? In fear of what? In fear of who? Peter's readers certainly had a lot to fear, didn't they? Remember their historical situation. They faced persecution. They faced death on a daily basis. You might live in a little bit of fear if that was your situation, right? They were being persecuted by their government. I mean, there were a lot of things to fear in those days. A healthy fear is a good fear. We should fear certain things. 
My wife and I were reflecting on this the other day. I was playing this game with my older kids where I, I take a ball and I throw it on our roof and I let it come down. Our roof is slanted like most roofs and I, I throw the ball on a roof and I let it come down and they have to try to catch it, right? So they get like three points if it's a direct catch and two points if it's a tip and then one point if they pick it up off the ground and it, it's a lot of fun. They're pushing each other and shoving and you know, there's crying and all sorts of great stuff. <laughs> now, five minutes into the game, I had three balls stuck on my roof. Um, <laughs> And, and then I had to run out for a meeting here at the church. So I run out and I get back home and I sneak into my, my oldest kid's room to give her a kiss because it was nighttime by then and she was already in bed. So I sneak into her room, give her a kiss and she opens her eyes and she says, Dad, mom let us go on the roof. <laughs> so you know, I, I go out and I have this conversation with my wife and our roof is very low and it's a very um, low pitch as well. So it's not as terribly dangerous as you're probably assuming. Um, but when I asked Janice about it, I said, Chelsea said, you let her go on the roof. And she said, oh yeah, all four kids were up on the roof. <laughs> and, I, and I said, our two-year-old too? And she said, yeah, Adam went up there and, and he wasn't one bit nervous. He actually cried when I had to make him come down from the roof. And we're sitting there reflecting on that and thinking maybe this is not such a good thing, right? Like my, my two-year-old was not afraid to climb a ladder and play on the roof. Now, he doesn't realize it yet, but his window leads directly to that roof from his room. So now we're talking about maybe we need to switch some rooms up in the house just to make sure when he gets older. But it might not be a good thing that there's no fear of the roof for my two-year-old. Fear is oftentimes a good and healthy thing in our life, depending on what we focus that fear on. Peter calls his readers to have a healthy fear of God. Fear the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we have to run around in terror and, and panic and trembling and scared like a kid in a horror movie? Well, the Bible uses that term fear on kind of a spectrum. I have a slide up here for you. It's, it's called the spectrum of fear, and this comes from a book by Dan Block on uh, covenant. But um, the spectrum of fear, I like what he does here. He shows that the word for fear in Scripture can mean a, a big range of different things. It can mean anything from absolute terror and absolute fright to a more common allegiance or trust in somebody. And in the middle of that, it can mean something like a reverential awe, a worshipful reverence of someone. Well, what kind of fear are we talking about here? I think we're talking about that worshipful awe or reverence, kind of the middle-of-the-line fear. Peter gives us a few clues to help us understand what this means. He describes God as one who impartially judges according to each one's work. That, he reminds us here, of our, our stay on earth is a temporary stay. This is not where we spend eternity, at least right here and now. He says, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. It's just a short stay. You are exiles here, he's reminding you. Your life here is temporary. This is not all there is to live for. There is an eternity waiting for you on the other side of this life. And Peter says, what you do here has eternal ramifications. Consequences for all of eternity. God is going to judge you and your work impartially according to what you've done. And that, fellow Christians, should strike a healthy fear in you you know that your time of judging is coming. 
Now, this does not mean that there's a works-based salvation. I'm not trying to suggest that, that Peter means that God is one day going to weigh your good deeds and your bad deeds, and if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you go to heaven, and if your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you go to hell. That's not at all how it works. The Bible doesn't say that anywhere. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 that your salvation is by God's grace alone and not by your works. So what Peter's talking about here is not God weighing our deeds for the basis of our salvation, but weighing our deeds for the basis of eternal reward. You see, the biblical truth here that you need to be aware of is that everything you do in this life matters. Everything you do has eternal consequences. Now, you might wonder, how could it matter, Pastor? I mean, as long as I'm a Christian, I go to heaven. I mean, isn't heaven like great and perfect and wonderful for everyone? Isn't heaven its own reward? Well, yes. In heaven is going to be great and perfect and wonderful for everyone. But the Bible also teaches that those who are faithful in this life, there will be extra privileges and blessings in heaven. It's certainly going to be great. But for those who are faithful, there will be additional reward. Let me give you an example of, of kind of how that works, I think, or at least maybe an analogy of perhaps how that works. How many of you have ever been on a cruise before? You've gone on a cruise. I called my mom this morning to say Happy Mother's Day, and she's actually on a cruise in Europe right now. Um, she picked up her phone, which I was surprised about, which will probably cost her quite a bit. But she's on this cruise, beautiful time, great food. She's having a, an awesome time with all of her relatives and family without me there. Um, but you know how cruises work. I mean, it's, it's all you can eat, all the entertainment you need. You kind of see the world as you're cruising along. As long as you make it on the boat, it'll be a great vacation for everybody. But not everyone on the boat has the same privileges and blessings and experiences, do they? Some have small rooms and some have smaller rooms. Some get to go on extra excursions. Some have to travel with relatives and some don't have to travel with relatives. It's the same location, it's the same boat, but some have additional benefits and blessing on that same boat. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but I think it might help us to think a little bit about heaven. We're all going to have joy there, unfathomable joy. We will all experience the blessing of God's presence, but God is going to reward us differently based on how faithful we were here on this earth. There will indeed be different privileges and responsibilities and even blessings in heaven. That's what Peter's alluding to here. God judges each one of us impartially with perfect justice. And that fact that our life here on earth has eternal ramifications, that should cause us to go forward with a little bit of fear and trembling. It should cause us to think, am I doing the very best that I can with my life right now? Am I living for spiritual eternal profit? Or am I just wasting my life on things that aren't going to matter 30 years from now? What are you living for, believer? Peter adds an additional motivation, verses 18 and 19. He says, You were redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious, innocent blood of Jesus. In other words, the purchase price for your salvation was unthinkably high. Remember when you were a kid and your parents took you to Disney World for the first time? Maybe you've had the experience of going, and inevitably you, you stand in line for four hours. You know, you're four hours in, and you're standing there 
for hours and hours on end. I mean, it's the happiest place on earth for some reason. But um, of course, like, you become miserable standing that line. You're supposed to have a great time, but you're standing there for hours and hours. It's hot. It's, you know, you're sweating and you're hungry and you're tired. And, and inevitably, at some point during that time at Disney World, your mom gets down, looks at you face to face, and she starts to say something like this. Do you know how much it costs for me to come here? You know how much it costs for us to get you here and all you can do is bicker with your brother and sister and complain. The plane ticket, the cost for admission, that, that $25 Mickey Mouse cone that I just brought you, like, do you know how much we've sacrificed to get you here? The costliness of the blessing motivates the behavior of the child. At least that's the ideal. Peter must have had a good mom because he knows this tactic. Except he doesn't use Disney World. He goes beyond even the most costly, precious things on earth. He goes beyond silver and gold. And he says, your cost for salvation was infinitely higher than even the greatest things this world has to offer. He says, you were bought with the unblemished blood of the Lamb of God. Jesus Christ shed his blood for you that you might be redeemed from your futile way of life. That is the most precious, costly gift anyone has ever given you. Praise God. And Peter says, live up to it. Live up to it. You can't earn it, of course, but live like someone has bought you this costly, wonderful thing, that gift of salvation. Notice, too, how Peter really slathers it on. He could have just said, Jesus died for you. But he uses all these big phrases. He calls Jesus' blood precious. He says Jesus is a, a lamb unblemished. Jesus is a lamb that is spotless. He wants you to know this gift is undeserved and an innocent man died to give it to you. The gospel motivates us to live in reverent fear and obedience of the Lord. In fact, there's a neat little wordplay here. Uh, that sometimes is obscured by translations. Verse 15 says, like the Holy One who called you, be holy. Verse 17 thing says, uh, if you address as Father the one who impartially judges. So he says, called, the Holy One has called you in verse 15. And then verse 17, he says, if you address as Father. That word called and that word addressed both come from the same root word in Greek. Let me translate it like this. The Holy One called you as a believer, so now you call out to the Father. As you are called, now you call out to God. There's a relationship here, just like all over this book, between God's initiative in salvation, God called us, and our responsibility to respond accordingly. We call on God in our worship. And as I said two weeks ago, these things work hand in hand. God's divine initiative our responsibility. They work together without contradiction, without embarrassment, without apology. Peter has given us three commands here, three imperatives in our text. Believers fix their hope on the coming of the Lord Jesus. Believers are called to be holy, and believers live in godly fear of their eternal rewards in mind. Now, before we hit the road today, there's one final reason that Peter gives us to have this hope fixed in Jesus Christ. Look at verses 20 and 21. Peter says, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, 
but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, there are a lot of interconnected thoughts here woven together. Let's see if we can follow Peter's line of thinking. This really ties this whole section together. First, Peter says that Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Remember two weeks ago, I, I talked about this idea of being foreknown. And I said it doesn't mean necessarily that God just knew about him beforehand. Oftentimes in Scripture, the idea of foreknown relates to the idea of being chosen. The Father chose Christ to suffer and obtain glory through his resurrection. Jesus was chosen by the Father to offer the salvation and the gospel that is given through his blood. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but Peter says he appeared in these last times for our sake. Now notice the way that Peter says that. Notice his perspective. In these last times, he writes, as a pastor... As a, as a Bible professor, I always get asked about the end times. Pastor, are we living in the end times? I mean, do you think Jesus is coming back soon? Do you think the end times are coming? Do you, what do you think about the millennium? What do you think about the rapture? Like, when is this all going to happen? And I understand what you're asking. These are really good questions and questions we should be asking as Christians. But we have to understand from the perspective of the New Testament writers, the end times began at the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice how Peter says this. He doesn't say in the end times or in those end times or in the later end times. He says in these last times. Peter wrote this 2,000 years ago. And if this was true 2,000 years ago, how much more true is it today that these are the last times? Now, I'm not saying anything about my view of the millennium or the rapture or anything like that. That's another conversation for another day. But what I am saying is that Peter's perspective gives additional motivation for us to live holy, godly, reverent lives in view of our eternal rewards. Because Jesus is coming back. 2,000 years ago, Peter says, we're living in the last times. Two millennia ago, that was true. How much truer and how much closer are we today to that final return of Jesus. We have all the more reason to live in light of those eternal rewards because believers, they are right around the corner. They are right around the corner. God foreknew Jesus, so he would come for our sake to make us believers when God raised him from the dead. What's the purpose of all this? What's the final result? Peter says, so that your faith and your hope are in God. All of this serves to establish and strengthen your hope and your faith in God. Knowing what God did for you in Christ Jesus, knowing that before the foundation of the world, in other words, before creation itself, that God was working to elect you as his exiles, that he was working through the precious, unblemished blood of Jesus Christ, that should motivate us to live holy. That should motivate us to live with reverential fear and worship. That should motivate us to fix our hope completely on the return of Jesus Christ and the rewards that he brings with him. There is no greater message than the message of this gospel. This is the greatest message you'll ever hear. So even though it's, it's Mother's Day, we're thinking about our earthly families, 
take a few minutes today and reflect on what it means to be part of God's heavenly family. Think about what that means and how that should motivate us. Are you part of that family? Have you taken time to trust in the Lord as your Savior, to put your faith in Him, to repent of your sins, walk away from that formal lifestyle, and, and begin to walk towards the Lord? And if so, have you been living according to the family name? I've heard Tom Allen say, God doesn't have grandkids. And I like that idea. It's a choice that we must all make, and we don't get to heaven because of our earthly families. My kids aren't going to heaven because of their dad as a pastor. I'm not going to heaven because my mom and my dad were Christians. We go to heaven based on whether or not we ourselves personally accept this message of salvation. Whether or not we understand the gospel and respond to it positively. If you've already made that choice and you've been adopted into the family of God, consider how you will now behave as a result of being part of God's family. Live holy as God is holy. We're going to take a moment and close in a word of prayer. And I would ask you to keep in mind, we do have some food, by the way, in the cafe after service. Stick around for a few minutes. Connect with other people in the family of God. But let me take a moment and pray for you now. God, I am so grateful for this gospel. We are overwhelmed, Lord, when we think about the unblemished Lamb of God dying for our sins, you electing us in eternity past, and Lord, the work that you are doing to fulfill and complete that salvation in us, which will have its final fulfillment at your return. God, I pray that you would help us all to live in light of those eternal rewards. Help us not to live just temporal, immediate lives, but to live in light of what is to come. I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in the way that we do live, that we would be holy as you are holy, that we would live in fear of God, Lord, that we would be obedient children. God, I pray that you would fix our eyes on the return of Jesus Christ. Lord, may you come soon. May it be today. I pray that we would all leave this place ready for you coming back. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that we've seen in the text this morning. I pray that it would indeed change us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for being here today. God bless.